It's the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma. Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and today I am joined by Dr. Jan Canty. Jan, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you for having me. I um, We are enjoying some lovely fall weather right now, but by the time this airs, it'll be winter. So <laughs> <laughs> looking forward to that, I suppose. So Jan, I'm not going to give a, a big bio or introduction because I'm going to, I just kind of want to let your story unfold as we talk and uh, go from there. Is that okay with you? Sure. Sure. So tell us just a little bit about yourself now and what you're up to and what you do. Currently? Yes. Oh, currently, I'm still working at 70. I am gardening. I work at a job uh, with the federal government. I travel when I can. COVID kind of scrapped that. Yeah. I'm, I'm remarried of uh, 17 years, and I'm the mom of three proud St. Bernard's. Nice. <laughs> I also have two adopted daughters, and uh, one recent, well, a couple years ago, had a child that had some real challenges and I was her birth coach and it was all new to me because I'd been through adoption, but she had brain surgery and she's doing better. So, you know, it's been like one thing after another. Wow. I'm also how old is she now? cancer, but I'm doing better on that front too. Oh, wow. Um, how old is the granddaughter now? Almost four. Almost four. Wow. And you're battling cancer. Sorry yeah. to hear that. I found it while I was in training for my fifth triathlon. Isn't that bizarre? I was oh, climbing yeah. a steep hill and fell and broke my arm. And I went in thinking I just had a broken arm, but they said, no, there's no bone in your arm. That's why you broke it. It didn't take much, but a bump. Oh, so okay. I went through the treatments and uh, that was now six years ago. So okay. my fingers crossed. Okay. So is it the kind of cancer that they say after five years that you're, you're cured or is no, it there's no battle? cure for it. It's okay. just, but you know, the way I look at it is 17 years ago, they didn't even have treatment. So I'll take what I can get. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> no kidding. Well, and St. Bernard's, they lovable dogs. Oh my God. They're like a shadow. Every, all the rumors <laughs> you hear are true. The drooling, the shedding, the space that they like to lean on you. Yeah. They're, they like to follow me around and lean on me. Nice. Nice. <laughs> you're their, you're their prop. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they're big when they want to bump into you and they're excited. One weighs 140 and one is 130. Oh my goodness. Yeah. They are big. Yeah. Well, um, on your website, I was reading a little bit um, on your bio. You say that your life is really divided into two parts. It's divided into a before and after. So let's start a little bit with the before. What was your life like before um, tragedy hit it? Pretty even. I came from a really good family. My parents were wonderful. I, I always talk, uh, they're not around anymore, but I always thought of my dad as the gold standard of men. He was a gentleman. He was funny. He was spontaneous. He had a lot of interests and he was very protective, but also flexible and encouraging. My mom was a real social butterfly, really artistic. 
loved uh, baking and cooking and always laughing. A uh, little bitty thing. She wasn't quite five feet tall. And I had a brother and I have a brother and a twin sister. We grew up mm. in Detroit. It was a lower middle class family. We had a single garage and, you know, it, my mom did not work. So my dad was providing for the five of us, but I had a great childhood. I played sports with a uniform, by the way, which back in the sixties was unusual. We nice. were on a team. What did you, what did you play? Uh, baseball. Okay. I was the catcher. My sister was the, I mean, I was the pitcher. My sister was the catcher, which was kind of weird. Um, but anyway, uh, sports, I was in band. I, we traveled a lot. We traveled to all 50 states every summer. We took a vacation somewhere. We always had a lot of pets, you know, chameleons and birds and dogs and cats. <laughs> and it was like a menagerie. Uh, we were close. We had extended family that we saw regularly. And I would not have traded my childhood for anything. Mm, that's wonderful. And Detroit in um, those years was Detroit um, quite in conflict and chaos yet, or on its way. It was racially divided, and it exploded in 1967 with the race riots. And I remember that vividly. I had just gotten my driver's license, and I convinced my friend to go downtown with me and see it firsthand. <laughs> the riot. Oh my! <laughs> yeah, I wasn't supposed to be. Uh, you know, curfew was coming, uh, and we snuck down there. And I actually saw it. It was near my grandfather's boarding house. And then also we had Roe v. Board of Education came along at that point in time. Right. And there was forced busing, which was. In the children's viewpoint, really idiotic. It was like, do the adults know what they're doing here? Nobody's happy about this. The kids didn't want to be in our neighborhood. And there was a lot of parents that did not want them in our neighborhood. There was a lot of fights. And my sister in particular, she was very meek and mild and withdrawn. And, and she was just pounced on a lot. Yeah. It did not go smoothly. Um, but, you know, it's the sign of the times. Um but it, and I went on to uh, college after high school. My family did not encourage that. They'd never been to college. They saw no point in it. They'd say, you know, all that matters is you get a paycheck, you know, just do what you like. That right. was their advice. Do what you like. So I really had to find my own footing. I did not want to, I, it's like I grew up knowing more what I didn't want to do than what I did want to do because I had no what role didn't models. you want to do? I didn't want to follow in my father's footsteps. He worked for Ford Motor Company. And I know I did not want to be in any kind of commercial kind of competitive business setting. That was not so my cup of tea. what drew you to psychology? I, um, my, I think it was the combination of my parents. My mom was very social and my dad was very interested in science. And, and I remember we'd sit down and he, he, was, he was such a good guy. We'd sit down and we'd bring out books of astronomy and he'd explain the stars or we look it up a rock and he'd explain the metal in it. And he was just interested in science just on his own and the natural, you know, cross paths of science and, and social is psychology. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a natural fit. And then when I started out in college, I wanted to be a children's author, but I happened to read a book called the magic years. And I read it because it talks about child development. And I thought if I'm going to write books for children, I have to know how they tick. So I read that book. And it was about how they develop psychosocially. And that's what turned me on to the field of psychology. So I ended up double majoring in English as well as psychology for my bachelor's degree. And then went on and got my master's, my doctorate and a postdoctoral fellowship. Yeah. And it never, it never ceased to interest me ever. 
So as a psychologist, uh, what was kind of your, um, did you have like a niche group that you worked with? My preference, and I did it for many years, was cross-cultural psychotherapy. And there was not a lot of people, I was teaching at that point in time, and a lot of other faculty did not want anything to do with that topic, and I loved it. So I thought, well, if I'm going to teach cross-cultural psychotherapy, I had better travel more because you can't learn it from a textbook. You've got to mm-hmm. actually go out into the world. And so I did, and I made it my life promise to myself to travel internationally to far-flung, pla- far-flung places as much as I could. And my goal was to make all seven continents. Unfortunately, COVID got in the way. I have two more to go. But I would bring back stories to my students and artifacts. And I it just changed my life. I can't mm-hmm. emphasize enough how important it is to travel internationally. Your change, your world changes. You look at your culture different. Yeah, and I felt so strongly about that, that when my girls got to be in their high school, early high school years, and they were turning into little princesses, I thought, we're not going to have this. And I I, we t- I took them to Kenya, and we worked in a uh, building a trusses for a girls' school, and they got to see what life is like and outside of their comfortable environment. And it really cured the princess in them. I'll tell you, they came back. And I remember my daughter, uh, she was 15 at the time, and I said, so how does our house looked different to you now that we've been gone for this time and, and seen such different things. And she said, I love my toilet. And I, how many of her peers would say that, you know? <laughs> you know, I remember after a trip to um, Mexico and working in the, uh, just the slums, I coming home and I just was standing in the shower and just like crying because there was this hot clean shower water. that yep. was clean. And yep. Uh, yep. yeah, we it take really it for does. granted. We, we do. really do. We do. What is the well, favorite place you visited? Oh, hands down. It was Guatemala. Oh, really? Okay. Absolutely. What did you love about Guatemala? I would actually have moved there if I could have. I loved everything. I loved the people, the artwork, the food, the music, the decor, the climate, you name it. I just felt at home there. I was in Antigua most of the time. And I just, I, I, I would like to, I've gone there twice and I would love to go back. Uh, but my husband isn't so keen on the idea of moving there, <laughs> so, but he did go with me and did love it. I, I absolutely fell in love with Antigua, but I've been in some places that were very difficult. I, when I was in India, I was there for a month. I didn't even have a shower that whole month. I had monkeys come into my room because I had no screens on the windows. They stole things from me. I had stinging caterpillars in my bed. I'll go on, but it was a challenge. It was a challenge, but, but I, I do love international travel and uh, hope to return to it one day after COVID leaves, if it ever does. What's a place that you don't want to go back to? India. India. I did not like how women were treated at all, at all. It was obnoxious to me uh, because I wanted to do a lot of photography. That's my hobby. And there was a group of workers across the street from where I was staying in a compound. And I wanted to photograph them because I was so impressed with these women. They were walking up and down steep stairs with these huge loads of bricks on their head. And I wanted to photograph them because in this heat, they're doing this. Mm -hmm. And somebody said, you can't do that. You don't have a man with you. And moreover, you're not wearing a wedding ring. Well, the humidity and the heat made it so impossible to wear my wedding ring. I hadn't worn it. And they said, even if it's a three-year-old boy, you need to take a woman to go across the street. And I just thought, what the heck? 
I did wow. it anyway, but I'm not sure it was the smartest move, but I did it. I, I, I learned later when I got home that a lot of women, if you're out alone and you don't have a wedding ring on, you can get men so incensed, they'll throw acid on you to, to blind you. And I, there's even a special commission of physicians in the United States who travel to India just to help with plastic surgery to develop with, to, to separate the fingers of women who have been splashed with acid because they put up their hands to stop the flow of acid in front of their face. And it, it causes their fingers to become like mittens. Wow. And I just, I just found that so obnoxious. I, I didn't like it at all. Not yeah. to mention I'm allergic to pepper and that's not the country you want to eat food in if you're allergic <laughs> to pepper. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, Culture-wise, we have so little understanding unless we see it. Um, yeah, and it's different. Difference, it. right? Right. So, as a photographer, what kind of camera do you like shooting with? Oh, I have a Canon that I really love. It's a. Mm -hmm. It's. I went from a Rebel to a. I think it's called a F one fifty F one one hundred one or something like Is that. Is that a full frame? Yeah. It's heavy though, and my hands aren't real big, so it's 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 a little bit limited that way. Yeah. Um. But I, my favorite topic or my favorite thing to photograph is to take photos of people or things that escape people's notice. And I'll bring them home. And like, I do it all the time with my husband. I'll, I'll say, well, did you see this today? And he goes, no, where was that? And I said, the parking lot where we're in in front of Walmart. <laughs> um, and I, I just find it opens up worlds and, and forces you to really pay attention to your surroundings. And so much can be conveyed in a photograph that you can't convey in words. Yes, absolutely. I'm an amateur photographer myself. Oh. I switched to I switched to a mirrorless Fuji, and I just um, sold all of my equipment, sold oh. all of my lenses, and switched. And I'll never go back. Is that right? <laughs> yep, <laughs> absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. Lots of fun. So, um, tell us then, kind of what happened at uh, with your husband that kind of created this this after not afterlife, but this post tragedy life. What happened? We were married eleven years. He was eighteen years my senior. He was a psychologist, and at that point in time, where I'm going to be describing, I was. I had completed my PhD and I was in my postdoctoral fellowship, but not completed it. I was like two weeks shy of finishing. And he just failed to come home one night. And it was a raging storm that night. I remember it vividly. I was watching a three-hour special on AIDS. So I lost track of time. I looked up and all of a sudden it was like way late for him to be home. And I'm like, and that was not like him. He was very punctual. Anyway, to make a long story short, uh, he didn't come home that day or the next or the next, and I reported him missing. My parents flew in, and eventually we were called down to the Detroit uh, police headquarters uh, to the Division of Homicide, where they told me that they did not have his body, but they believed he'd been murdered by two people from the cast corridor. I never heard their names before, and that the motive was money, and um We'll be in touch, basically. They how called they, me. How did they determine that they thought he had been murdered murdered without a body? I did not know this at the time, but now I know that why they said that was a snitch had called them and informed them of things that they had seen and heard. And when they did a, executed a search warrant, they found scalp on the carpet and on the ceiling. They found wow. blood smeared in the hallways. They found blood in the drain of a laundry tub in the basement. 
and so on. It was a pretty ugly scene, but there was no body. And back, this is DNA in 1985, wasn't what it is today. Right. So you needed a body to make a conviction of a homicide. Now, today, you would not. But they believed it would be a matter of time before they're able to find his body. And the same snitch then also called back and turned them on to this other guy who said he helped bury the body. And it turned out that he did. What happened was they, he had been, Al had been murdered in Detroit on Casper Street by uh, John Carl Fry and Don Marie Spence. They dismembered him. They put him in three suitcases. They drove his identifiable body parts with them up to Northern Michigan and the other body parts, they just flung on the freeway. Oh, They were high as a kite. And when they got there, they buried it in a shallow grave and it was really the perfect spot because it was, they buried it in a, it's owned by the university of Michigan biologic station for a deposit where they deposit roadkill for the purpose of scientific investigation and so what a perfect spot to bury a body. I mean, there's a stench of smell everywhere of, you know, of death. And But uh, the guy that uh, bear, helped him bury, helped them bury the body realized that the writing was on the wall. If he didn't turn himself in, they'd be coming for him. So he turned himself in. They flew up there. They unearthed the body after it had been in the ground for over a week. Flew it back to Detroit. Called me early the next morning and said, get in here. We need you to identify him. So I went with my parents, and the person that I, I always feel obligated to mention is Detective Marlis Landeros, who escorted me to do the identification. She was amazing. This woman was the first woman of color in any position of authority in the Detroit Police Department. She was professional. She was uh, just an amazing human being. I, I respected her immensely. And she guided me through it. We got through it. And on our way out of the building, the press had assembled on the front steps. And she twirled me around and put me in her squad car to drive me out of the area. But she stuck with me. And um, and thank God she did because she kept my sanity together. I don't know what I would have done without her. Today, we have victims advocates that help with that, but not back then. Why, um, if it was just over money, why the excessive violence and dismembering and um, well, one, they were high and two, they felt entitled to the money. Okay. Why did they feel entitled to it? Because he'd been giving them money and they just felt like, well, I don't care that you're out of money, get more money. Why had he been giving them money? Well, there's a whole chapter in my book on that. It's really complicated, but I'll just try to forsake a time. Uh, he had an emotional need to be the authority, to be big daddy, to be the provider. And I outgrew him. He wasn't um, in the beginning. I was a student and he was and a psychologist. I admired him. I mean, he wasn't my teacher, but there was that dis- disconnect between where he was and where I was. But I kind of surpassed his education even. And he didn't like that. And he sought other people that he could sit and pontificate to. Mm. And he bought their attention with his money. They would sit there and listen to his stories and let him be the expert. And he would brag and go on about the history of Detroit and this and that. And they were a captive audience, basically. And he never did drugs, but he even purchased drugs with them. Mm. And uh, he undermined their ability to become clean and sober even, I think, because he needed them to be 
dependent upon him. And so he ended up giving them the equivalent of almost $300,000 in today's dollars. So after he was murdered, I realized we were not only broke, I was in huge debt. I had no idea. I mean, he was behind on taxes, house payments, office rent, you name it. Wow. So there we were I was just hemorrhaging money and I I had no real means of an income. He lied, he thought he told me he had life insurance, he didn't. And because I was, you were in your fellowship, right? Right. I, I was just within two weeks of finishing. So I didn't really have a source of ready income. And uh, we were in debt and he didn't have life insurance. And I couldn't sell my house, which I didn't, which I was eager to do. I didn't like it. It was too big. And the reason I had trouble selling it is because Michigan law then and now, and it's not the only state that does this, states that if a crime has been committed on the property or not with the owner of the property, it has to be disclosed to a potential buyer. Because if you don't, really, and they're suspicious, they can rescind the offer at any time in the future. So that devalued the house. And it was also a buyer's market at that point in time. So I sold this mini mansion for $40,000. And I owed more than that because he was behind in in the mortgage. I, I don't. I don't understand that law. Like, I don't understand the need for disclosure, if especially when something didn't happen on the property. Especially then. I know. I agree. But that's the law. Wow. So talk to me about the just the emotional fallout from, from having this murder happen and all of the financial strain then and being, you know, finishing schooling. What was the emotional fallout like? Initially, for quite some time, I'd say a year and a half, I was just frantic, just numb. I I was so busy putting out fires. I mean, I, I was worried about HIV because he was with this drug abusing prostitute and I was undergoing AIDS testing. I was worried about finances. I didn't know if they caught everybody. I was worried about my personal safety. The media would not leave me alone. They even published a map to my house in the news on the front page. Oh it was like everywhere I turned, there was just another issue every day. And so that took front and center for a long time. And I finally realized it wasn't going to go away. I didn't know then, but I know now that part of the reason it kept getting in the paper was one of the reporters for the Detroit News wanted to write a book on it. So he kept the story going and every little thing that happened, like Fry Skate Prison once, well, that was front and center. And when he came up for um, when he was diagnosed with FC, that made the news and every little thing. It just kept being in the news, you know, and I got tired of it. It's like I got tired of being pointed at. I got tired of being called the widow. And it became clear to me that the only thing I could do was leave my hometown because it wasn't going to go away. And I did. Right. Right. So you ended up closing your practice. And I just started it and then I closed it, just started it and then closed it, selling your home and starting over. So what was, where did you start over and what did you do? I went, I went from clinical work to teaching and I went into the heartland. I, I, I was teaching at a small college. I deliberately chose a place way off the map where nobody could find me. And it was night and day from Detroit. I mean, people didn't lock their doors and the climate was even worse than Detroit. People were wonderful. (laughs) 
uh, I loved what I did. And it was a cheap cost of living. I had a lot to learn. I didn't know much about pig farms and agriculture and windmills and, and all that, but uh, I did. And I, I taught and I loved it, uh, but I couldn't deal with the climate. So I ended up moving again. And in between then and now I've moved 12 times. Wow. Did you, why did you keep moving? Usually for business reasons, um, or, or I'd move within the same city a couple of times just because of changes in my housing. Like when I adopted my daughters, I needed a bigger place. And then when they grew up, I needed a smaller place. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it was dictated that way as well. And, uh, and then now that I'm closer to retirement, I wanted to live in a rural environment. But I keep that private because the man who killed my husband's has a son by the same name who lives in in who I'll just leave it there, who lives near me. And he has threatened me for writing the book. Mm. So I don't talk a lot about where we live. Yes. Yes. Well, that makes, that makes perfect sense. So you say in your bio that three nearly simultaneous events called you out of silence. Right. What is, what does that mean? I was at work one day and this happened to be a week when our, my coworker went missing. And people were coming up to me and going, can you imagine having somebody in your, your family missing? And I'm going, oh, no, because I was used to saying that by then. This is you know right. 20 years later. And I thought, you're such a phony to myself because I know exactly what that feels like. And that same day, we had a lecture from a physician on some topic. I don't recall what it was. But as a side comment, he made the statement, people that live with a secret for a long time pay a price physically. And I'm like, ooh, that's not good. And I went back to my office to kind of think on those two things that had happened in the one day. And I looked over at my favorite bookshelf, which is all about people that have had traumas in their life and came out and wrote a book about it. Very different circumstances, like the Chilean miners who were buried for 69 days in Chile and and, uh, home invasions and this and that. And I thought, you know, if they can do it, I can do it. So I made the conscious decision to sort of back up and because I think it for many years, it served a purpose to be under the radar and to keep yes. my life private. I didn't talk about it with anybody for 20 years, nobody. And then it was really hard to reverse that. In fact, when I met my second husband, even he had to pull it out of me and he didn't know the nuances of even everything until he read my book. <laughs> I just, I was just, it's exhausting to go through it. And it's, it was a long time ago. And I just, don't find I, I willingly go there unless I really have a need to. And right. so, so those three things really came back to back and, and forced me to, to travel a different path in my life. And then after that, I found people were pretty nice. They didn't judge me and they were receptive and didn't, they weren't like I thought they would be. <laughs> I think I was expecting the treatment I got from the media or something, but I was just going to say, were you expecting that, that treatment and that judgment that you'd received in Detroit? Yes. All yes. Those years the, the number one thing that upset me was the statement. How could you not know? How, how could you not know? Because that implies I would have known what's right. wrong with you, you know? Right. I'm- and I didn't get that from people, at least not to my face. And so from there I went and developed a podcast for other so-called homicide survivors, because there's very, very few resources out there for us. And I wrote uh, the book um, that you're speaking of, uh, Life Divided. 
And now I'm starting a second book. It's about three quarters of the way done. It's a guide for homicide survivors on what to do, start to finish, like the death notification, tracking down a funeral home, dealing with the crime scene cleanup, the media, law enforcement, et cetera, parole hearings. I mean, it goes through the whole it's about 20 right. chapters. What did um, what did the process of writing feel like for you? Was that cathartic? Was that difficult? Not by that time, because I'd waited so long to do it. I, I did not want to use the readers for catharsis. I thought that would not be fair to them. And number two, I wanted to make sure my head was on straight before I put pen to paper, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so I waited a long time before I could do that so that I could have enough detachment to be as objective as I reasonably could be under the circumstances and tell the story as fairly as I could. Okay. So how long did it take you to write it? Six years. Six years. Okay. I did a lot of research. (laughs) I flew back to Detroit twice. I read 11 pounds of court testimony. I interviewed people. I looked at photographs, microfiche of films, old video footage, because I, again, I wanted it to be as accurate as I could make it, not just my recollection. And when did you finish it? Uh, last year. Last year. Okay. And so it's published and out now. It's published and it's in all forms. It's uh, in writing of paperback. It's also hardback and I have an audiobook version of it. Very good. So it's called A Life Divided. And then you um, went on to do a podcast called The Domino Effect of Murder. And so you say you kind of found your people. Yes, I did. <laughs> I'm, I'm amazed with them. I, I meet people that have had such horrific circumstances in their lives, and they're still standing, and they're willing to discuss it for the benefit of other people. And I admire them and I connect with them and I'm grateful to them for their willingness to be of help because it's my hope that people brand new to this awful experience can then use it to help them figure out what the heck is going on because there aren't very many people out there that can do that, even Mm -hmm. therapists. And so it's now heard in 11 countries and I, Okay, I'm I'm jazzed about it. I'm just finishing my second season, and uh, I'm already ahead of myself in terms of next year. But yes, I feel very uh, appreciative of them, and I I really am glad I did it. It was at the suggestion of a relative of mine who does crime scene cleanup for a living. It was her idea. Have you discovered anything new or refreshing about the human spirit as you've talked to your guests? Yes, I did. I have. In fact, what I did is I listened to all my episodes back to back to figure out that very thing. And what I found was that while everybody's homicide situation was unique, the aftermath was not. And our aftermaths were very similar and that there is a tremendous resilience in people if given half a chance. And by that, I mean, they need to connect. They need resources They need physical attention. I mean, by that, a physician needs to examine them. They need support. They need understanding of what they're going through. They don't need judgment, and they don't need publicity. And there's a lot of things working against them, to, which take a whole show to go through that just very point. But there's a lot going against homicide survivors' recovery. People are under the assumption that, oh, there must be an outpouring of help and 
and attention and, and no, mm-mm. no, it does not happen. You, you get, you get to feel like you're the, the poster for crime in your neighborhood and people pass judgment, people reverse course in, in the, in the grocery aisle when they see you coming, there is a lot of stigma associated with it. And it just deepens the problem, not to mention the financial fallout, the um, physical fallout, the spiritual fallout. So people that I speak with have all found really unique ways to come to terms with that. Some have written books. Others have done uh, scholarship fundraisers in the honor of the one who died. Some have gone on speaking engagements. Others, um, I'm trying to think of some, one is a, she had an awful incident happen in Jerusalem where Palestinian terrorists tried to kill her and did kill her hiking partner with a machete. And mm-hmm. so what she's done is she's done anti-terrorism work. I mean, it just sends people in such different directions if they have, once they find their path, it takes years to find it, but once they do, they're so committed to it. And so by pulling those common threads of survivorship, you find um, solidarity and find yes. uh, find your people. Yes. And there's an old saying, you know, to build a mountain, you need an earthquake. <laughs> and I think that's what trauma survivors have to go through. It's, it's an awful experience. I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but it does not mean the ruination of your life. What it means is your life is different. You know, there's an old concept in Japan called Kintsuji, where they take, or China, sorry, not Japan, China, where they'll take a vase. Historically, an emperor had a crashed vase that he loved and he did not want to throw it out. So he ordered his artisans to figure out a way to save this crashed vase. So they came up with the idea of mixing resin with gold and they reassembled the vase and he loved it. He said, you know, that vase is not the same as it used to be. It's still a vase, but it has all these fractures in it that are now gold. And it has a history in it. It's unique. It's stronger for it. Mm-hmm. And it will always tell a story. And that's how I think of people who are trauma survivors is that they can do that too, if shown, given half a chance. Right. You know, um, the the concept of trauma living in our bodies is not something that everybody knows about um, and how that, that impacts life. Talk it's to me a huge. little bit about that. It's huge. You, I wish I could have had two hours to talk on that. That is so important. It, it's so important because number one, you cannot, you should not attempt to get into your grief and try to do grief therapy, so to speak, until you feel safe, until you've calmed that emergency physical response system in your body. You have to do that first. If you don't feel safe, if you're still having insomnia and sweats and nightmares and irritability and flashbacks, you aren't ready to start the grief work. Mm -hmm. And you can't do the grief work, which is verbal, until you've done the biological part of it, which is nonverbal. And what we know is that trauma, I'm thinking of the work of um, some of the Holocaust survivors I've read, is that if you do uh, rhythmical things, uh, swimming, um, pottery work, yoga, meditation, martial arts, walking, these things reorient your body to the present, to the here and now. And it's like a baby, you know, if they're upset, they rock. And it's there's a reason for that. The rocking sends out a chemical in your brain that is the antithesis of cortisol. And it's a calming kind of 
brain chemical. And you can bring that about by doing rhythmical kinds of activities. And it's putting you in the here and now. It's it's saying to your to your psyche that trauma is back then, you're here today, mm-hmm. it's safe. And once you start to calm that emergency response system and your brain takes an exhale, then you can start the grief process. But right. it's it's two steps to it. And I think even a lot of therapists don't understand that. They'll have somebody come in that's been through trauma and they'll say, well, let's sit down and discuss it. Well, that's putting the cart before the horse many right. times. Right. Well, and it takes a while for that, uh, like you said, that emergency response system to calm down and for the hypothalamus to take over and be able to, you know, use use your whole brain. Right. Right. That's right. Because trauma changes your neurological system and you're not the same after as you were before. And it affects memory. It, it affects your ability to think. Absolutely. Uh, it's not just it doesn't just change what you think. You can't think. And so what good is talking therapy going to do until you can formulate your thoughts, you know, and, and that's the time when the reporters will shove a microphone in your face and say, so how does it feel to know that your husband was dismembered? You know, you're not even in the here and now you don't, you can't put two thoughts together. And society doesn't get that. Yeah. Do you have, when you watch these things unfold in the news, do you have great empathy for people who are in that situation? I I imagine you do. I do. And anger at the media for exploiting that situation Mm -hmm. for the sake of ratings. However, I will also add this, that they wouldn't be so driven to those ratings if 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 the public didn't want to see that. Right. The right. public wants it. They demand it. They vote with their with their uh, TV ratings. And so right. if they backed off, I think the reporters would correspondingly turn their attention to something else. Right. So talk to me a little bit about spiritual fallout. What does that look like? Well, I've always been a believer in pantheism, more like American Indians believe. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like the universe had ganged up on me <laughs> and, yeah. and you know, I didn't have anybody physically, even in my area. I, uh, my parents lived out of state. I didn't know there wasn't any internet. I, I was isolated except for detective Landeros. But I found if you deep, if you can reach deep within there's spirit there to find. And that's what I relied on. And a friend of mine happened to make an offhanded comment that really made a difference in my life. He said, you know, life is, and he said it very kindly. He said, life is meant to be an adventure. And when I heard him say that, I thought, you know, that means this is leading somewhere. I don't know where, and I have no idea how, but it is. And I got to trust that process. And if it's leading somewhere, I can deal with it. I don't want to be stuck here. I was definitely never one to to wallow in my situation. And I thought I'll be damned if they're going to get one more minute out of me than they already have. I was determined to find something good come out of it. And so I think spiritual in its broadest sense means using something bad for something good, Mm -hmm. that you can find something good come out of it. And all the people I've interviewed on my podcast are similar. They firmly believe that you know, they might not have the body of the person that they loved in their life anymore, but their spirit stays with them. And they want them to be remembered for that, not the worst day of their life. Mm -hmm. And I think people sense that when they're around you and they take, I, I mean, I'm hoping that they take some strength from that and realize, you know, 
if you can do it, I can do it. Because mm-hmm. there's something special about me or the people on my, we're all just regular. We put one foot in front of the other every day, you know, but I think a lot of times people don't know what they're capable of until they're pressed to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, Eastern thought um, revolves so much around uh, life being a journey and being a process and not our Western um, beginning, middle and end kind of philosophy. Do you feel like when people go through such extreme trauma, does it always kind of bifurcate a life into this before and after feeling? I think it, if the people I've spoken with, it often does, mm-hmm. but they'll, but it doesn't have to stay that way. I mean, I, I would say right now that, you know, is, there is a before and after, but my after is kind of in a way gone back to where I started because I'm happy. I found somebody that I can be with and um, I feel centered and optimistic and creative and all those things that I felt well before the murder, but it mm-hmm. took 30 years to get to that point. Hmm. Interesting. Well, and then when I go ahead, and I was just going to say that when I was diagnosed with cancer, it was the same approach that I took with the homicide. It's like, be grateful for what you do have. And let's see where this leads. You know, I don't know how it's going to turn out. Isn't this interesting? (laughs) What an inside view of a medical center I've never seen before. (laughs) And I marveled in the technology that they brought to my bedside. I marveled at the at the physicians that were there and the technology, I can only get a glimpse of the science that went behind what they did for me with the stem cell transplant and so on. But I felt really grateful because 17 years prior to my diagnosis, there was no treatment for my kind of cancer. They would just say, get your affairs in order. Right. Well, and uh, we have a daughter who is a cancer survivor. She was diagnosed at the age of two. And I remember thinking, um, just marveling at the human spirit of people, not just survivors, but people who work in that field and who offer these great gifts of hope and grace and just these great doses of joy that you just, I I just marveled at that. Day after day. My, my person was Michelle. She was my nurse in the morning and I was, we were always looking for engraftment because you don't always engraft. And if you don't, you die. And she would come in and she'd say, you know, I remember this very vividly. She said, tomorrow you're going to engraft. And I go, how would you know that? Because every day they put your blood work up on the whiteboard. And it was zero, zero. Right. I had no, no immunity. And she said, I just know tomorrow's your day. You watch, you hold me to it. Sure enough. She came in the next day and she was sash- sashaying around my room and she put the numbers in red on the board and you grafted, you know, and. I thought I, she was like the sun coming up in the morning when I was in my hospital bed. I looked mm-hmm. forward to her. And, you know, how does she have that kind of spirit working in it, especially around children who are sick? Right. Day after day. I, I, I don't know how she, because it didn't all make it out. I know that. And right. I, I was very grateful to them in the same way that I've been grateful to the COVID researchers and, and, and vaccine developers. I mean, their life was on the line, but they did it. Yeah. That's amazing. Absolutely. Well, Jan, what do you most want people to learn from what you have learned from life so far? I guess if I had to boil it down, I'd say that there's always room for hope, that you don't know what you're capable of until given half of a chance to discover that. And once you discover it, it takes on a life of its own. There's no need to beat your chest about it or worry it'll go away. 
you just connect with other people that have that belief in themselves and it kind of takes a life of its own. And I believe that it's, it's, it's so important because, you know, the only thing we do have left is our attitude in the end. We can't mm-hmm. change life. We don't have control over everything, but we certainly can change how we think about things. Nobody right. can nobody can force that. And so if you can change how you think about things by being confident, by being hopeful, by being in the company of others who feel as similar as you do, there's nothing that can stop you. It, it, even, even if you're on your deathbed, it will be, it will be better for it, you know, uh, because life is not meant to be easy, I don't think. And you learn a lot through the hard times, much more than you do the good times. Absolutely. Well, the book, the book is called A Life Divided. And the podcast is The Domino Effect of Murder. Your website is Jan Canty PhD. Is that right? Yep. Yes. Okay. Um, And are there other social media handles or places where people can follow you? No, if they went to www.jancantyphd.com, that has everything in it. The only thing it does not have is a new book I'm working on for homicide survivors, which is a guide that takes them through the whole process. Other than that, everything's there. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for the gift of your time and your insight. I just have enjoyed the conversation and I appreciate everything you've offered to us today. Well, thank you, Jill. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts today. You can follow Jill on social media on Facebook and Instagram, JillRiley.author, and on Twitter, JillRileyAuthor. Email Jill at JillRiley.org.